Chapter 19 of the Shunza is called Discourse on Ritual. I'm probably going to have to do this um, again at some point later on um, in the future when I've really mapped this all out because there's so much depth and insight into this that I won't be able to cover this um, the first time through. And you'll probably, as a listener, be overwhelmed anyway if I do try to go through every little aspect that comes up. But Shunza's understanding and exposition of all the dimensions of Lee is truly amazing. And it's difficult to go thoroughly through everything without this becoming something like a five-hour talk. So I'm going to go ahead and hit the major points here without going, uh, without overwhelming you as somebody who is understanding this for the first time. So ritual is the most salient and unique aspect of Ru philosophy. And so if you look at other philosophers who have um, great fame within the philosophical world. It's, uh, it's the Confucians that seem to uniquely emphasize the great significance of ritual. And when people think about ritual, that word in the West, they think about some sort of religious ritual. So for example, prayer, or if you're a Christian, communion, those are typical rituals uh, that people will think about when they hear the term ritual. But the term li has a broader meaning than that. It means anything that has to do with a way of acting that contains significance. So ceremony, so a wedding would be a ritual, even though it has nothing to do with the world of gods or spirits. A village drinking ceremony would also be including in as a ritual. Funerals, memorial services, festivals, holidays, capping, that's the coming of age ritual. All of this is what Shunzi is talking about when he describes what's going on here. So there are simply many, many rituals out there. And we are not, very, uh, our societies today lack ritual in every sense of the word. We lack li, we don't, have many rituals. We have still funerals and weddings and birthday parties, and that's about it. There are some other kinds of rituals such as graduation ceremonies, uh, but with a graduation, there isn't too much depth. Uh, there's not too much complexity in the movements. Oftentimes you get your name called, you stand up, you go walk in line, and you grab your diploma, shake the dean's hand, uh, and then you move on with life. So the, that's not particularly complex, even though it would still be considered a kind of ritual. So there's not too many rituals in the modern world, and even worse, of course, if you think about Lee as a kind of, as also encompassing manners and etiquette, there's very, very little of that as well. So people speak very crudely and people do not greet each other with propriety, with respect. It's all very, at best, casual. So ritual, the term encompasses a lot and there are a lot of different aspects. So let's go into this. This first paragraph is talking about desires. Shunzi says that human beings are born desires, but if they cannot get the objects of their desires, 
then they have to find some means of satisfaction. So what ritual does is that it it allows people to uh, satisfy their desires without going overboard to this extent where other people are now not getting their own desires. So part of ritual is not simply having a ritual, it's, it's having a kind of ritual. So for example, uh, when people get married, it would go against ritual propriety to overspend. People today spend a lot on their weddings and they rent out these fancy uh, halls and they have they buy so many flowers and when you go see some of these weddings the uh, the people who are getting married they may not be Christian but they have rented out a very fancy cathedral uh, so it all looks beautiful but this is going beyond the established ritual and because of this a lot of money is spent and so when when people do this that means those same flowers and the same um, the same money could have been spent on other other things uh, whether we're thinking about the family you know uh, the, the the man and wife getting married uh, they can't have the money to spend on other things for their future or you could also think about it this way if they're buying up all the flowers then that raises the price of flowers uh, when other people want to use that for their funerals or for their weddings and so forth um, but it goes beyond a one ritual or one ceremony at a time ritual in general uh, because the form of it the movement the physical movement of the ritual is so beautiful you don't need to adorn it with a lot of riches you don't need to have these fancy um, flowers. You don't need to have all of these fancy cloths. You don't need to have all of this fancy food. The movement, if the movement of it is beautiful and the movement of it is meaningful, it's poetic, then you don't need to go purchase all of these goods and use them up. Like once you pluck the flowers, they're gone. They're done. You, know, they're, you have to wait another year for them to grow for example, right? So if you have the proper movements, the proper actions, then it's like poetry. Poetry is, in, in a sense, materialistically very cheap because you have a bunch of ink spelling out some words on a single piece of paper. In that sense, it's very cheap, but it's very beautiful, it's very meaningful, and it could bring people to tears and that's a good analogy. That's a good way to understand how ritual works. You don't spend as much materialistically, but the form of it is beautiful and it's therefore meaningful and you don't have to spend so much money and society overall doesn't have to spend so much money. Another way in which ritual can cause people's desires to be met without going into excess, for example, would be marriage itself conforms to ritual, if you don't have the uh, lead that goes from two people not knowing each other and ending up in a marriage, so lo let's look at the stages of that. There's the um, introduction, there's the betrothal, which is like an engagement period, and then finally there's the, the wedding itself, and then after the, the, the wedding, they move in together and live as husband and wife. Now let's look at today and how materialistically wasteful all of this becomes if you don't abide by something like this. So what happens is in order to find uh, a potential mate, what people do is they spend a lot of money on dating. They spend a lot of, of money on social gatherings so that they can meet other people. They spend a lot of money. Um, these days, if they move in together without getting married first, that's also actually long-term expensive. People think they're saving money, but uh, long-term, this does a lot of chaos to the, to the finances because they settle in, they start to rely on each other, but they're not devoted to each other. And so when they do move out, somebody gets the short end of the stick, maybe both. 
because they're used to somebody else taking care of them in a certain way. So for example, one person does the cooking and cleaning uh, and then has less energy and time for their career. Well, that person, once that other person leaves, is going to be out of income. Um, so in that case, there's a problem. There's also another problem. People compete very fiercely during the dating state. And so in order to impress other people, so a young man, they imp want to impress women. What do they do? They get nice looking clothes. They get fancy looking cars. All in order to impress the woman. The woman, on the other hand, what she does, what does she do? She buys all these dresses. She puts on all this makeup. She does all this um all, all of all of this socializing, which itself is expensive, all of this in order to compete, in order to find a spouse. And so there's this very intense competition that happens before marriage. And part of Lee is to respect the, uh, to know what to do and what not to do. So you should, nobody should be uh, hitting on somebody who is already in this relationship. But when you have this boyfriend and girlfriend moving together, they're not yet married. A lot of people will still flirt and, uh, you know, um, do things to attract the boyfriend or the girlfriend in that relationship. So that interferes with the obtaining of, of, of the desires. So all of this time, money, energy is being wasted in competing with other people. And if you have the proper lead, you minimize all of that. You introduce the people, you arrange them to get married, you introduce the two families, you arrange the uh, young, uh, the son to be married to the other family's daughter, and then there's a betrothal, and then they, they get, uh, the, uh, they go through the wedding ceremony, and then after that, everybody knows, um, if you are a, a, a man, do not talk to that person's wife, and if you're a woman, do not talk to that person's husband, that other person's husband. And so, um, and so that is a natural, peaceful situation. Next paragraph, uh, ritual is a means of nurture. Um, it, it nurtures it, uh, it's able to nurture because it's beautiful. So for example, you have, um, certain musical instruments playing in order to please the ears, he says. So ritual is a means of nurturing the soul, nurturing the spirit. Shunzo also discusses differentiations. Um, and with differentiations, it's important to be able to distinguish one from the from the other and this goes in many ways so if we're going back to the marriage uh, situation uh, it distinguishes people who are married versus people who are not so people who are married you don't try to uh, attract them to yourself in a romantic kind of way or this could um, occur in terms of high and low so uh, one of the rituals to do in a New Year's Day in Confucian societies is to show respect to elders. And the elders would give some uh, token of kindness towards the uh, younger persons. Okay, so you can bow and wish uh, great luck for the New Year's to your parents, and then your parents might give you um, uh, a, a bit of money as a token of kindness to towards you and so that reinforces the different roles okay and that encourages that nurtures that's why probably this is in the same paragraph this nurtures these proper feelings of kindness to your juniors and respect to your elders okay ritual has three roots that's line 55 and the three roots the first one is heaven and earth heaven and earth together means the cosmos 
So ritual is one of the rituals roots is to connect you to the cosmos, to what's grand and beautiful and beyond simply your day to day life. Uh, so if you think about things like festivals celebrating uh, the New Year's, it connects you to literally the movements of the skies. You know, or if you are celebrating the harvest season, the end of the harvest season is connecting you to the earth below and what it produces with you, food. If we're talking about number two, it honors forefathers and ancestors. You get your ritual, it's passed down. It doesn't come out of nowhere, it's passed down from your ancestors. They figured it out, they created this culture generation by generation, and it changes, and then you add uh, some something, or you might take out something that doesn't quite work. And so that is a literal root of ritual. And then finally, it exalts lords and teachers. Your lords and the teachers are the ones who teach you what ritual is, how to go about it. And the lords are the ones who maintain um, the existence of ritual. Because if your government does not do that, over time it disappears. If your government does not give you a holiday, some time off to celebrate it, people start to forget. And a good example of that is South Korea, because South Korea used to do all these rituals uh, 100 years ago or more, but because the government is no longer um, very active in maintaining it, people start to forget about these things and they, they barely do them. And today in the Western world, uh, or uh, rather, I wouldn't say South Korea is not westernized at all, um, it very much is, but if we're talking about um, you know, Europe, or uh, North America. Uh, when it comes to time to be, uh, when we're talking about Christmas time, there's very little. It's very also very nominal, uh, very nominal celebration of Christmas these days, uh, these decades. So it has those roots, but you also use ritual to honor your ancestors, you honor your fathers, to honor your lords. You also use it to honor your teachers as well. Okay. So ritual in the above paragraph um, on line 38, this is about nurturing yourself. Um, essentially you get the proper measure. You get the proper measure by following Lee, and you gain from engaging it. This this was pretty abstract. It, it, this will make more sense as we go through the chapter. Throughout this chapter, we do have some more specific things here, like uh, he who possesses all under heaven, the son of heaven, the emperor. He pays respect to seven generations, but if you possess a single state, you pay respect to five generations. So, uh, for example. Um, King Tejo, um, the Joseon dynasty, he uh, honors five generations of his family uh, when he founds the dynasty because he's in possession of a single state, Joseon. And the emperor, though, the son of heaven, um, remember, an emperor is like the lord of the kings, so the emperor, he pays respect to seven of his as uh, of his generations okay uh, of course one of the important aspects of ritual is to honor whatever uh, or whomever uh, so for example you might have this um, shang sacrifice and that honors the fundamentals of food of drink. Another sacrifice honors um, uh, other kinds of, of fundamentals. Um, and so to honor the fundamentals is called good form and to take care of practical needs is called good order. And you are able to achieve both here. So caring for practical needs um, how that would tie in is that you have maybe a uh, 
ceremony at the beginning of harvest season or planting season and that gets people to get into the right mindset. All right, let's go into some more psychological aspects here. Line 119. Uh, in every case, ritual begins with what needs to be released, reaches full development in giving it proper form, and finishes it in providing a satisfaction. And so when ritual is at its most perfect, the requirements of inner disposition and proper form are both completely fulfilled. All right, uh, what, does this, what does this mean? Let's go through an example. A funeral is a ritual. And you have this need to grieve, to cry, to feel sad, to express that. And so it starts with this, and then it reaches full development by giving proper form. So you do certain things, um, such as um, decorate the body of the deceased. Um, you know, it's, it's typical in the um, in Western tradition to put, say, a rose on top of the coffin as the coffin, right before the coffin is being lowered into the ground. And so that gives, you know, those are examples of giving this grief um, proper form. You know, you're saying goodbye as you give this uh, gift of a rose to the person. And it finishes in providing its satisfaction. That sounds a little weird, but uh, let's, we have to go into the Confucian rituals, um, a son would mourn the father for three years. So it's giving its satisfaction. In other words, the the grief and the the mourning has full expression. It's completed. In other words, so when when you have this, um, you completely fulfill the inner disposition, the what you're feeling inside, and the proper form. So it's all done beautifully. So you have this feeling, and then you're expressing it the proper way. Okay, you can think about that with any other ritual. So for example, you're thinking about marriage. Well, you love this person, and then so you have this ritual that symbolizes with proper form, this love, this willingness, to willingness to sacrifice this bond that uh, that uh, this bond that lasts the rest of your life that is what is being symbolized with the movements and perhaps words that uh, is in your ritual that are spoken in the wedding ceremony But even at its lowest, it is to revert the disposition alone as to subsume everything in this grand unity. Uh, in other words, you're at least expressing some of the um, emotions there. So not all rituals are as good as each other. Some rituals are not as good, but at least they allow you to express your emotions. We have this line at its next best dispositions and outer form overcome one another in succession. What does that mean? Um, clumsily done rituals, the dispositions uh, are felt first and then the out uh, the physical actions follow after that. But the correct ritual is both going together. So if you feel, if you, if you, um, Let's say you, you cry your heart out and then you have uh, the ritual that symbolizes your your inner pain. Well, that's kind of awkward. It's kind of clumsy. You know, so um, if people beat their chest, you know, you do that while you feel the, the pain of grief. But if you do that the next day or, you know, a year after you beat it, you beat your chest and that's it. It, it looks kind of weird. Um, so clumsy rituals uh, do not work as well as the, the the finest rituals we have a section here um, it's a rhyming scheme uh, and or at least it, it's, it's uh, structured in a sort of a, a poem 
So this is a part that starts in line 126 by ritual, heaven and earth, harmonious shine, all the way down. And this is an introduction to the next major idea regarding Li, which is that it is a, it establishes a lofty standard and none under heaven can add or subtract to it. In it, the fundamental and the secondary accord with each other. What is just being discussed here is that we encompasses proper standards, including morality. So properly is moral. It symbolizes moral things. So badly, bad ritual, bad ritual is something um, that maybe you wouldn't uh, even call it Lee, actually. Uh, so let's just say bad ceremony, bad ritual. That is bad um, possibly because it's immoral. It goes against E. So one example is a garter belt toss in a wedding. So this is a very trashy custom. And this is where the groom in front of everybody goes under the skirt of the bride and then pulls down the garter belt and tosses it to a bunch of bachelors as if it's like the bouquet toss to the unmarried woman. This is against E. It's also against Ren, of course. It's against E because a husband, his duty to his wife is to protect her and to treat her as sacred. And so for the husband to take off the undergarment, literally the underwear of his wife and throw it to some other men, that's perverse, that's immoral. And so that is not good ritual. So Lee, when we're talking about Lee, we're always, we're not talking about simple, anyone's ritual. We're talking about proper, proper ritual. And so Lee contains a lofty standard. So if you follow Lee, generally, um, so if you follow Lee, ritual propriety, in the sense of ritual propriety, not simply a ritual, but for example, uh, you wouldn't marry somebody whom, who isn't really going to be your wife. And you wouldn't do the three years of mourning for somebody who is not related to you in your family. You wouldn't do that, say, for your dog. You wouldn't do that for um, a friend. You wouldn't take that ritual that is meant for a son to mourn his father for three years. You wouldn't do that. So, of course, implicit in Lee is a proper application of it. So, um, you wouldn't shake somebody's hand after he, he just, he, he, um, after he insulted you right then and there, because that's not the proper application of shaking somebody's hand. So, so in the next paragraph, that's why Shunza goes and talks about uh, the ink line and the scale and the compass and the carpenter square. Why? Because these are ways, these are standards. These are ways to measure length, weight, direction, straightness, etc. So ritual acts in a similar way. So the Junza examines ritual carefully and then he cannot be deceived by trickery and artifice. Uh, the ink line is the ultimate straightness, the scale is the ultimate balance, the compass and carburetor square are the ultimate circular, rectangular, and ritual is the ultimate in the human way. We use ritual to determine whether something is good or not and how far it is in the world of human action. So some people, if they, if they behave 
very differently from ritual, then we know they're not very good persons. Whereas if people come close to living ritual in their everyday actions, we know that this is a more virtuous person. We have this interesting line here in 167. Uh, to be able to reflect and ponder what is central to ritual is being able to deliberate. What is this about? You want to understand the meaning of the form, the meaning of the form. Okay, so if you're thinking about the wedding ceremony, it's easier to understand because it's about love and devotion. So that's what's central to that ritual. And you need to be able to do that for any of these rituals. Confucius says, he was once asked, what's the meaning of this particular ritual? And he said, I can't really say, but somebody who knew its meaning all the way through can rule the empire as if it were in the palm of his hand. In other words, the, the ritual, the form of the ritual, contains this deep wisdom within it and expresses it beautifully in an unconscious manner. The next part I want to talk about is line 201. Again, I can't go through every little thing. There's this really interesting middle paragraph in this page, but um, that's very advanced. Uh, it's not worth going through here. 201, um, ritual is that which takes care to order living and dying. In other words, you have these very uh, important, significant rituals. You might even consider them to be cardinal rituals to establish different parts of your life. Um, the closest we have to these things today would be funeral, wedding, and birthdays. Uh, but uh, there's more to it than that. Um, in a, uh, we want to think about capping. This is where a child becomes an adult. So this is very important psychologically for somebody to go through because they need some clear mark in their life to, where people say, okay, you need to be an adult and act like an adult, and we're, we're going to treat you like an adult. We're not going to call you kid or anything anymore, or you know, pat you on the head. We're, that's gone. So it's, it's a very reciprocal thing. It doesn't go one direction or another. These days, we have all sorts of problems because we don't have capping. We have a lot of immature behavior because people, when it's convenient for them, still think that they are a child. And then, we find that these teenagers try to be adults in ways that are rather silly, such as drinking alcohol and smoking tobacco, because that's what adults do, quote unquote. And then they, uh, because they're trying to get respect from their peers and people who are slightly younger than they are. Uh, we also have older adults, people who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they are doing ridiculous things to the young generation, not giving them proper respect, and that, that feels this kind of desperation to prove themselves as adults. And we have a bunch of chaos that happens as a result of that. Uh, we already talked about weddings um, uh, and the whole process leading up to it, uh, betro uh, introduction, betrothal, and, uh, and, and the wedding itself. Uh, we talked about funerals. Of course, that's to mark and celebrate the person's life. Memorials is also to celebrate the person's life and connect the next generation to the generations that lived prior to that. And that's very important because people need to, if people don't have a sense of the past, they have no sense of the future. And what I see is that people who lack an understanding of where they came from and their ancestry, these people feel very lost in their own lives. Um, and if you have more questions about that particular point, uh, you can always, um, you know, you can always ask for some, um, some guidance there. Okay. 
So now we have some details that go into funerals and memorials. Um, and this relates to status. This relates to rank. So if you are somebody of a high rank, then you have many layers to your coffins and you invite more people to attend a funeral. This does make sense. And uh, your reaction should not be to, be to think, oh, this is really petty or something. This makes sense. You invite more people if you are, say, the king because your life affected more people. It only makes sense. And, and everybody is, um, in a sense, the subject to king relation is not an abstract one. It's actually a personal one. Even though there are many subjects and only one king is still a personal relation. And so, uh, you know, it does make sense to mourn this person because their, their life did influence yours, it did impact yours. What about the, the, the um, layers of the coffins? Why does that make sense? It makes sense, again, because we're reflecting the importance of the person. And in burying a person, you also honor their, them and their life. So if this person is of high rank, and remember, according to Shunzo, rank correlates with virtue. You give rank based on virtue. This is a virtuous person, and that we should honor them in their, in their task. OK, the next big idea here is around line 255, um, this idea of timeliness. So Shunzo says, ritual takes care that fortunate and unfortunate events do not intrude upon each other. All right, so I'll just give the most um, blatant example of this. When your parents pass away, when your father passes away, the son uh, is not supposed to engage in sexual relations uh, during the mourning period. So that's the most uh, obvious um, Ver, you know, example of what Shinza means that fortunate and unfortunate events do not intrude upon another. Um, and, and another uh, more subtle example of that is when do you bury the deceased? Uh, you, you give enough time for people to come from afar to gather before you do bury the deceased. So coming, people coming from afar is a form of fortunate event. But of course, the unfortunate event is that somebody had passed away. And so that's a more subtle example there. Uh, we have a number of paragraphs uh, that talk about the funeral rites. Um, you know, it's talking about that in some detail. It's talking about some of the meaning, which again was important. We already talked about that here. Some of the parts of the ritual have to do with comforting the living. Um, other parts have to do with um, avoiding the sense of disgust uh, because the, corp, uh, the corpse is uh, decaying and it smells and it's you know, not looking very pleasant. Um, and the, and the, the mourners gradually add more ornamentation, um, moves the, uh, the body away further and further to pursue respectfulness. So there's always this emotional moral meaning to each part of these rituals. These rituals are not simple, they're complex. And I think today is very rushed. There's almost no parts to it. Um, and I, I, I think we lose a lot out of it. A lot of beauty is lost from it, but also a lot of symbolic meaning is lost from it. And, a lot, and this opportunity to change our spirits unconsciously at an unconscious basis is lost because we, we oversimplify our rituals. Um, this next part in 304 is very important. Ritual cuts off what is too long and extends what is too short. It subtracts from what is excessive and adds to what is insufficient. In other words, we get the appropriate degree, the appropriate length of time, and the appropriate amount. Uh, it achieves proper form for love and respect and brings to perfection the beauty of carrying out morality. Yeah, it's, it's a great summarization. So let me give you some examples here. Um, I have met so many sons who's, uh, not my own sons, but uh, I've met so many people, uh, so many men, their fathers pass away. 
Maybe it happens when they're 25. Maybe it happens when they're 45. But their fathers passed away. And then they, in three days, about three or four days, they passed away. There's some, some sort of wake. There's a burial, a funeral. And then they go back to work. And that's pretty awful. The monarchs in Confucian societies, they did not show up to court for three years. They handed over affairs to their prime minister. Why do they do that? They have the most responsibility in a sense. They have the most responsibility out of anybody in the whole country. But they take three years off of work, from work. So that was even doubly true for the common people. For the common people. Even down to the lowliest of the employees. They should be able to take some time off for a long time, for a long time. So when I see these people, um, I've met a number of these people, their father passes away, they go to the work within three or four days, they don't take any time off, their whole personality changes forever. They are very bitter, they have this sort of anger about them, they've changed, and I don't see that ever return. And I really truly believe it's because we don't spend our three years mourning properly to fully express what's in our hearts. That's the problem. Let's do another example here. A lot of cultures give a lot of time to people after they get married. There's another time period where they don't show up to work. So these days people have maybe one or two weeks of honeymoon time. And that's it. And then life hits them, they have to go back to work. Other cultures, you get an entire year. That's your honeymoon period, a whole year. And I think that makes a lot of sense because um, human beings are like penguins. Penguins won't have offspring unless they are free of what we call stress. What we today call stress. Now, I say that because I don't like the word stress. I think it's very vague. There's better words for that, like anxiety, concern, apprehension, fright, etc. But um, it really does take a year for the husband and wife to get to know each other as husband and wife and to relax and be merry and have the first child. It really does take a year. So I, I like this idea that we, it doesn't have to necessarily be a year. Um, it can be, but I, I, I think two weeks is too short. And not just because I, you know, not simply because um, I want to relax and have a vacation. A lot of people simply treat their summer honeymoon as a vacation. This is precious bonding time between husband and wife. It's very important, very important for the rest of the marriage. So you want to give the husband and wife plenty of time, time off. So those are some examples of the time. You want to extend what is too short, but also you need to cut off what is too long. Uh, I would actually s suggest that perhaps the three-year mourning period is actually a way to cut off what is too long because you will feel that loss for the rest of your life, but you can't mourn like this for the rest of your life. So you have to cut that down to three years. And then we have this interesting line. Again, uh, you know, there's so much to this. Uh, every line has a lot of unpacking to do. But, um, you know, I don't want to keep you listening to this for 10 hours, so we're going to go to the next major idea. Um, line 232. Uh, Thus, when the changes in disposition and appearance are sufficient to differentiate good, fortune, and ill fortune from each other, and to make clear the proper measures for noble and lowly, close relations and distance relations, then ritual stops. To go beyond this is vile. That's a very important point because um, once you've 
once you've established what needs to be established. To go beyond this is tempting, but it's wrong. So let me give you some ex uh, examples of this. Part of ritual here is to make clear proper measures for noble and lowly. In other words, some people are more capable or virtuous than others, and so you give them more honor. But you can do this to an excessive degree, and that's vile. Right? So if you allow this person who is better get enormous amounts of land, that's vile. Right? If you give them too much reward, this is vile. So you can think about that with regards to wealthy people today. How much money do they have? Is that enough to differentiate them from high to lowly? And if you go beyond this, is this not wrong? So another example of that would be those people I talked about who have very extravagant wedding ceremonies going beyond, you know, simply establishing that they are married um, and expressing their feelings to go beyond that. Now that becomes vanity, right? So if you properly express this love and devotion, it's not merely going up to the judge and says, okay, now we're married. And that's it. That shouldn't be a marriage story. That's too small, right? So that's not, um, that's not enough. But there is some midway point where it is enough to go far beyond that is vile, right? So if you have this huge, uh, if you're spending something like $50,000 or $100,000 on your wedding, uh, some people do, uh, I guess technically there's even weddings that you know, go for millions of dollars or something like that if these people are, that's vile. You're going way too far here because now it's not about, you know, it's not about expressing your devotion and love. Now it's just pretending you're better than everybody else who can't afford a wedding that expensive. And that's a real motivation as to why these people do that. That's vile. So even if this could be considered a feat of amazing difficulty, the ginger virtuous person will still consider it crude. To be base, to be base. Okay, and so the end of this paragraph says, uh, gives some examples of this, and then says, it is rather the behavior of one acting for ulterior purposes. Again, that's like people trying to pretend they're better than everybody else because they have a fancier, more expensive wedding. That's the ulterior motive there. So a lot of deep wisdom here, uh, timeless wisdom here. Sometimes there's these paragraphs that really do a good job summarizing these ideas. Uh, 350 is one of them. When people are born, the beginnings of these dis two dispositions are originally present in them. If you cut these dispositions short and extend them, broaden them and narrow them, add to them and subtract to them, make them conform to their proper classes and fully express them, make them abundant and beautify them, cause root and branch beginning and end to all go smoothly and fit together, then they can serve as a model for 10,000 ages. And just such is what ritual does. Not None but a devotedly and thoroughly cultivated man of virtue can understand it. Thus, I say that human nature is the original beginning and the raw material, and deliberate effort is what makes it patterned, ordered, and exalted. If there were no human nature, there would be nothing to, for deliberate effort to be applied to. If there were no deliberate effort, then human nature would not be able to beautify itself. Human nature and deliberate effort must unite, and then the reputation of the sage and the work of unifying all under heaven are there upon brought to completion. What's going on here? Uh, he is answering this. Um, he's perhaps indirectly refuting Mencius's idea that human nature is naturally good. Because he's saying you have this original human nature, but it's not, um, it's not great yet. Uh, 
And so you have this human nature, but then you work on it and you put deliberate effort and that's what makes a pattern ordered, exalted, beautiful. You need to unite this human nature with deliberate effort. Uh, Mencius talks about human goodness in terms of seeds. And I don't think that's something that uh, Shunza has a problem with. That's not the part. It's more of the parts where Mencius will say, um, don't tug, uh, don't force yourself to grow. I think Shunza will say, no, you should try to work on yourself with a lot of effort. Whereas Mencius has this idea, uh, this analogy or allegory where you have this foolish farmer and he sees these sprouts in order to help the plants grow, he tugs on them. Of course, this is bad for the plants. But Shunza's metaphor is different. He's, he's saying uh, you don't work that way. You're not going to naturally grow abundantly. You have you have your original substance, but you have to work on it. You have to pattern it. You have to shape it into something better, like uh, the way that people work on wood. All right, in the paragraphs following, we, we have more regarding funerals um, and the meaning of each different part. Um, then we get to line 418. Now we're talking about beautifying. This section has to do with beautifying. Overall, Lee works to ornament happiness, sorrow, etc. To ornament, to make it look beautiful. We have these feelings and we want to express them. If we can express them beautifully, this actually can bring us to greater heights. So the happiness of taking a wife or husband, this is a greatly happy moment. You can ornament that because otherwise you you get together and you're happy, but it kind of feels um, a little off, you know, like the perhaps the feeling is too fleeting or perhaps there are these anxieties you have about other people not respecting your marriage, your relationship. So you have this wedding and it's supposed to set people straight. It's also supposed to, it's also supposed to make it more beautiful than it already is. So it enhances what you already feel. It brings more happiness to you. It also makes your sorrow more eloquent or beautiful and makes your sorrow something that feels right not necessarily in a moral sense but brings you to a emotional um, perhaps uh, equilibrium i'm not saying peace necessarily because sorrow um, is not peace but it, it brings you to a, um, uh, a proper feeling. Very hard to describe here. Okay, so a lot of this has to do with the funeral rites and the mourning period uh, because this is, I think, the clearest example for Shunzi to follow. So we have a lot here um, that are discussed. What's interesting in one line 466, he's starting to talk about uh, those that have blood and chi, in other words, any kind of living animal, is sure to have awareness, and of those that have awareness, none fails to love its own kind. And it starts to say even birds and beasts, you know, if they lose their companions, then they try to find them again. And when they can't, they uh, stomp the ground, cry out, pause hesitatingly, and then only then is able to leave the place. So this is very interesting. Shunza has an understanding of animals. What's, what's kind of funny is we pretend these days we know more about nature than people did back then because we have things like microscopes and so forth. Um, but in terms of animal behavior, 
uh, people lived pretty close to nature. It was really literally out, right outdoors. They didn't have these perfectly manicured suburbs or something like that, that, you know, essentially gets rid of anything besides raccoons and squirrels and small birds. Uh, they, you know, lived within nature. And so they could easily observe the behaviors of these birds and mammals. That's basically what a beast is, is a mammal. Um, and I suppose um, that also includes uh, lizards. But they, they, uh, they observed. You know, it was not difficult for them to do. And so nowadays people say, scientists uh, discovered that animals look like this. And it's sort of like, well, look, at, look at ancient philosophy. They, they knew how, how animals worked already. You know, you don't have to. What's his point here, though? What's, what's his point here? Um, he's saying even animals, um, they have some sense of loss. Okay. And so in this sense, human beings are not categorically different from animals. Um, we also have a sense of loss. And so Shunzi is saying, don't follow people who, can, who say that you can get rid of these sorts of emotions, that you can um, not be attached, and that's a good thing. Primarily, he's probably talking um, in refutation of Mozart, who is saying that we should have a very quick burial practices and spend very little in it to preserve money and resources for other things. Um, he's a pretty materialistic kind of thinker, very utilitarian. And he's uh, and and so basically the argument that Shunzi is advancing is is don't you feel ashamed for not even being as good as animals? We're human beings. We're greater than them. Even in our compassion, we should be more compassionate. In our intelligence, we should be more intelligent. In our sense of loss, we should have more mourning, more grief in it. That's his point there. All right, so there's more discussion in this chapter about the mourning period and the burial practices and so forth. Um, we have this really interesting line of 570 in this section about, and that's the last thing, uh, that's the last line I want to talk about in this, this chapter, and then we'll move on to talk uh, for a little bit and summarize everything about ritual, uh, um, the main points about ritual according to Confucian philosophy, even the parts that are not necessarily in the chapter. But let's look at this. Uh, there's a couple lines. Thus I say the sacrificial rites, this is what's called uh, sacrificing to one's ancestors. The word sacrifice is to um, is essentially to celebrate Um, it's kind of a festival. It's sort of a festival, but not necessarily joyful. Right? So that's that's what's translated to this word sacrifice. It's not necessarily meaning um, that there is an animal who is being slaughtered in order to be offered to a god. That's not what it, uh, what is meant by sacrificial rites. It means uh, typically it, there could be an animal that is like a lamb that is uh, or a, a sheep that is sacrificed. That could happen, um, but um, that's not really the main purpose. Is not to appease a god or a spirit or something like that necessarily. So we'll we'll see that here. The sacrificial rites are the refined expression of remembrance and longing. They are the utmost in loyalty, trustworthiness, love, and respect. Okay, and at the end of this paragraph, um, he says the Junza regards them as a way to be a proper human being. The common people regard them as serving the ghosts. So remember what Shunzi says about heaven, he warns about uh, superstition. You know, you do divination not because you're super, being superstitious about it or you do the rain sacrifice, uh, not, to, not because you believe that it will actually bring about rain because it's good form. In other words, he's, he's saying to not be superstitious. So. With that context, you come to here, and basically Shenzhen is saying, I believe he's, he's, he's uh, implying that 
Um, you don't do these sacrifices to your ancestors and you don't do these memorial services to your mother and father because you're trying to get good luck from them because you're praying for them to change their lives for the better. You're doing this in order to remember them, in order to long to be with them, in order to express these natural feelings for them. You're doing this to show love and respect. You're doing this as a way to behave beautifully and righteously. But the common people, um, they are not doing this for that purpose only. Uh, what they do that is to try to communicate with their parents who have already passed away. And Shunza is not going to be heartless um, and he's, he's not going to be uh, arrogant and say it's impossible for them to still live in spirit form. He's not going to be that heartless or arrogant as to pretend to know for sure and to you know, slap people in the face like he did and that part where he says you know, the, it's going to rain whether or not you do the rain sacrifice. He's not going to say that here. Right? He doesn't know and he's humble enough to know uh, that he can't say, well, they definitely don't exist at all after they die. Um, and he's not going to, he's not going to be, even if he did believe that, he's not going to be uh, heartless and say something like this. Um, however, he's going to say, you know, you're not doing this because you're serving um, the spirits of your ancestors. You're doing this because it's what's right to do, it's how you feel, it's what's beautiful to do. All right, so that's the last major point, philosophically speaking, in this part about ritual. So why, why is ritual important? Ritual is important because it encompasses what is moral for a person to do, and it shows us a way to express what is moral in a beautiful way. It also gives us an opportunity to show our righteous and uh, human feelings in a beautiful way. So that if I don't really know how to express my love, I do have some sort of guide that already exists by somebody who is very talented. For example, some people, they're not good at writing songs um, or composing music, but they might learn a very beautiful song to show their love to their girlfriend or boyfriend. They might do this. Um, and this is simply them recognizing that they don't have that talent to do it themselves. So they take something that already exists out there in the world. They maybe they put their own maybe uh, take on it. You know, they they kind of slightly adapt it. But you don't have to feel ashamed or embarrassed that you're not the one creating it from scratch. Very few of us have that raw talent within us, and any talent, of course, needs to be developed. So the t uh, the person who came up with these wedding ceremonies and so forth maybe uh, was already a very old man and was already born talented. And so how can you catch up to that if you're only 20 years old? So, um, so it helps us express our feelings, the feelings that are moral, that are right for us to have. It expresses those beautifully. It helps differentiate among different relations, different people within that relation. So, we can differentiate friends from spouses. We can differentiate father from son. We can do these things through ritual. It helps us guide us. Um, one way that ritual works that's very important is that it prevents chaos from happening. One way that ritual is not being respected today is something like co-gender bathrooms because it's very tempting to simply take a look you know or if you have co-gender locker rooms changing rooms 
or if you have male doctors checking out female patients, male OBGYN, for example, or female doctors checking on male patients, that is a situation where it's very tempting to have the wrong feelings. First of all, the feelings don't really control. So you're going to have all these male doctors uh, enjoying what they see. Um, because that's, you know, that's the nature of male sexuality. So, the, you know, the feelings, you don't really have any control. But there's also this temptation that'll happen. Uh, a lot of male doctors will ask for these examinations, even though it's not truly justified. Um, and, and so you have um, these temptations. Ritual can set up a boundary to protect a person from going into transgressing into what's wrong, into incorrect behavior. So that is also part of ritual. It not only guides us towards what's good, it also moves, uh, moves us away from what is perverse and evil. We'll still get a little bit more about ritual when we get to the chapter next on music, because music and poetry and ritual are work very analogously. And so what is said about music can also apply to somewhat to music, to ritual. And what is said about ritual, again, Lee, can apply to music. So um, we've just talked about some of the most important aspects of Lee. You will still learn more about it as you continue your studies here. But Lee is very important. It is a incredibly great method for changing yourself, for changing your family, for changing your society. And you can do this through a way that is not coercive. Uh, in other words, we're not using law to punish people and force them to behave certain ways. We are simply having a beautiful culture and then naturally people become better, people become more virtuous. And that is not itself going to make you become a junzu or a sage, certainly. You have to work on yourself as an individual. But you get to live in a society and a family that is going to be much better with because of Lee, because Lee improves the culture, than one without Lee. So Lee is very important.